on the last episode of Obscene, I talked about why policy is so personal and spoke about various policies that affected me and my family. I asked you to think about policies that imbue, affect, or create unnecessary obstacles in your life. Which brings me to this episode, where I'm asking you to think about the unnecessary obstacles that are preventing Americans with disabilities from a life of equity, equal access, and equal dignity. This episode, we will explore those obstacles, why they are unnecessary and illegal. I'll be speaking with two disability rights advocates, Rebecca Coakley, the Director for Disability Policy at the Center for American Progress in D.C., and Dustin Jones, a board member for the Center for Independence of the Disabled in New York. This episode will also remember a woman who spent her life moving and removing obstacles by fighting for policies that paved the road to equal access for her family and for families across America. Her name is Carrie Ann Lucas. We have been here since 9.30 Tuesday morning to commit to vote no on the BCRA, which is the version of the Health Care Act that is before the Senate. That was Carrie Ann Lucas on June 29, 2017, speaking in front of Senator Cory Gardner's office in downtown Denver. She and a dozen other activists with disabilities were protesting Better Care Reconciliation Act, better known as BCRA, which would have repealed Obamacare, therefore diminishing protections by cutting Medicaid deeply, creating a massive financial strain at the very least and a death sentence for many others in the disability community. Carrie Ann Lucas and a dozen other activists were arrested that evening, and, as we know, BCRA failed to pass in the Senate, thanks in a large part to the work done in the disability community. Mr. Peters. (laughs) Mr. Portman. Mr. Reed. Tragically, Carrie Ann Lucas passed away at the end of February of this year. I say tragically because according to her family, it was preventable. To quote my upcoming guest, Rebecca Coakley, her insurance company thought the medication she needed to recover from a lung infection was too expensive and instead approved a drug that would lead to her loss of speech and eventual death. Carrie Ann Lucas died to save them $2,000 even though it ended up costing the insurance company over $1 million to try and salvage their error. Though her death was tragic, her life was not. In 2010, Carrie Ann became a Petra Fellow. The mission of the Petra Foundation is to recognize, encourage, and support unsung heroes who are making distinctive contributions to human freedom. And Carrie Ann Lucas made many. Where Carrie saw wrong, she looked to make it right. The Civil Rights Education and Enforcement Center, of which she was recognized for her work in intersectional civil rights, celebrated her outstanding leadership in disability rights, parents' rights, LGBTQI rights, human dignity, and faith, wrote a touching tribute on their website of just some of Carrie Ann's contributions. I will summarize just a few that they listed. In high school, she protested her school's refusal to permit a disabled student to march with a band. In college, she challenged their failure to provide access and effective communication and protested institutional racism from the faculty. 
She founded Disabled Parents' Rights, a nonprofit devoted to ensuring that people with disabilities have equal rights in parenting. She became a national expert and trainer on the rights of parents with disabilities and through her legal advocacy, secured decisions upholding and promoting those rights. She acted as the plaintiff in a number of groundbreaking disability rights lawsuits, including one of the largest public accommodation class actions and others bringing equal access to a variety of different facilities. She spearheaded the Family Preservation for Parents with Disabilities Act, an act that ensured parents with disabilities are not discriminated against. Before Carrie Ann Lucas' critical work on that bill, many parents with disabilities were in danger of losing custody of their children. That act protects disabled parents from losing their parental rights. No one will feel the loss more than Carrie Ann's partner and children. But her work and her life embodied that of a social justice trailblazer, fighter, and champion. And that is a loss for us all. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. My first interview with Dustin Jones, board member for the Center for Independence of the Disabled in New York, was originally rescheduled because his wheelchair tire needed to be fixed after a gap in the sidewalk damaged it. While I love living in New York City, even I, as a non-disabled person, can see how utterly inaccessible it is. Luckily for all New Yorkers, we have the Center for Independence of the Disabled, better known as CIDNY, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the independent living centers movement, a national network of grassroots and community-based organizations that enhance opportunities for all people with disabilities to direct their own lives. I spoke with Dustin briefly about some of the literal obstacles facing the disability community in New York City. Obstacles really was just knowing that when I was pushing, and at the time I was using a manual wheelchair, uh, more like a hospital chair, um, cracks in the road, cracks in the curb cuts, constantly being stuck on the uh, lifts on buses, uh, just the frustration of not being able to hang out with my friends if if we wanted to go to a restaurant. You know, I, I wasn't able to get in with them or I had to be carried into certain places. If I was by myself, I had to uh, order my food outside while everybody ordered their food inside. You know, having a little bit of a not shame, but embarrassment of having to, to go through all of that, which really just lit a fire for me to want to see my uh, neighborhood and the city do better. 
What is an ADA transit desert? If I had to explain what an ADA desert would be, it would be telling people um, uh, lack of accessible transportation, uh, whether it be taxis, subway stations with uh, elevators, uh, or even buses. Uh, when you don't have as much as, like, let's say, midtown Manhattan, that that would not be a uh, transportation desert because you have several options when it comes to accessibility travel. Um, but when you place like Queens Village and where I was was closer to Nassau County, it took me a bus ride for about, I would want to say, 20, 25 minutes before I ever got to an uh, accessible station. And then, you know, when you get there, of course, you would hopefully pray that, you know, that elevator is working. So the ADA passed 29 years ago. How is this not a violation of the ADA? Not having accessible stations or not having accessible transportation in, in general is definitely a clear-cut violation of the ADA. You see, the problem that we have when it comes to the ADA law is that we don't have good enforcement. When you look at different laws around you know, the city and the state, you know, they tell you that we don't want you speeding, we don't want you running red lights, and we have the police to make sure you don't do that. There really isn't no ADA police, so to speak, who can really put down the hammer and say, hey, these things are happening and they shouldn't be happening. This is where, you know, people like myself and other advocates where we come together and we really try to hold uh, the feet to the fire, so to speak, of politicians and high executives when it comes to um, making, whether it be housing, transportation, you know, any type of access, we, we just try to really push for fair, equal housing. I always say, you know, the MTA had a slogan, you know, MTA is going your way, but it's really not. You know, you can't have a system where you're talking about serving the public and giving the community what it wants, but a large member of the disabled community is left out of that question, out of that question. And we need to be a part of, you know, the, the conversation when it comes to bringing accessibility. So what do you think is, I mean, it took the death of a single mother with her carriage falling downstairs. Um, what is it going to take for, for the mainstream public to really demand accessibility because it's not just it doesn't seem like it's just an issue for the disability community it's also for people single mothers or, or you know people who have stroller the senior citizens why is this not seen as a as a all-encompassing issue in new york city having no access is a community issue you know and you know we all have to stick together as a community with the unfortunate death of Malaysia Goodson, I think it definitely will raise a lot of eyebrows and bring, you know, a different kind of talk to the table that's never been bought before. You know, something like this should not have happened to anybody. You know, you have young mothers, you have young families with, you know, with strollers, you have the elderly, you know, you have people with invisible disabilities. Everybody should have the option to have an elevator at their station or have an elevator within you know, a fair walking distance away from their home. And, you know, I personally believe that if there was an elevator at that station, something like this would have never happened. I mean, 
the the tragedy might have still happened, but you know the events of you know falling down the stairs you know with your child I don't think that would have happened but you know this is why we need more accessible stations because this could have happened to anybody you know and I too have been in situations where in my wheelchair I, I use a manual wheelchair and I've come to stations where you know I couldn't get out and I've had to call the fire department or the FDNY excuse me, the FDNY or the NYPD to uh, help me um, out of the station that um, there's various stations across the city and that's my biggest fear, being an anxiety sufferer. What if somebody messes up and drops me and we all come tumbling down the stairs? I've also had, you know, situations where I've flagged out complete strangers and I've asked them, you know, can you help me? And, and you know, thankfully they have. But, you know, it makes me think now. I'm literally asking someone to put their life in their own hands because they too could have an accident carrying the chair, you know, up the stairs and, no one should have to go through that. You know, no no elderly person, no mother, no father, no person with a disability, no one. And I think the communities across the city needs to really rally together and, and, and really push this issue about accessibility. I think we can get it done. And um, I will also ask, um, you know, not having, I think a lot of people, when they think um, there's not accessibility there, they're not thinking about the financial consequences of that because it obviously affects people's ability to get to a job is this something that is a talking point when um when you're talking about accessibility with the public what are some of the things uh, that you're telling people for them to kind of understand the full picture absolutely um that is definitely correct if you don't have adequate you know access to transportation you will have problems with employment you know people with disabilities is the highest number of unemployment. And one of the main reasons why is because we don't have accessible transportation. We have a failing paratransit provision that needs to be worked on. So when we really look at the other option, there, there really is none. So it makes it hard. So when we have to go to school and we have to go to work, you know, our bosses are not going to want to hear, you know, oh, well, you know, my elevator's out or, you know, I don't have an elevator at my station, so I have to go out of my way. You know, they, they, they really don't want to hear that. I myself have been a victim of that where I've had to go to various meetings across the city and because of either no access or an elevator that was broken, it delays me. Like one elevator could put you back anywhere from an hour or more in a delay. That, that's, that's not good. Is it difficult to hold those uh, accountable for not complying uh, with the ADA? Because it's not just transportation in New York. I mean, obviously, the sidewalks can be a nightmare. And, um, you know, yeah, a you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right, which, which is one of the reasons why I'm sitting in a warehouse right now getting my wheelchair fixed because, you know, I hit something on the road and I don't know what it was and it completely destroyed my chair. Um, there are a lot of um, lawsuits out there trying to bring accessibility and trying to bring change. You know, I am a plaintiff in, in a few. You know, there's, there's a state and federal um, lawsuit when it comes to our transit, when it comes to our, any accessibility and, and elevator repairs. So, the work is out there. It's just that 
you know, it, it takes time, unfortunately, you know, to really see these things through. But but they're definitely out there, and we're definitely we're we're, we're meeting with the right people. We're we're getting the right team together, and we're all standing by one another to to get these issues done. And actually, I have one more question. Just tell me a little bit um, about the Center for Independence of the Disabled. Um, this is a New York chapter. As I assume is this a, a, a nationwide organization then? So, yeah, we, we, are, we are in New York. We are state recognized. Um, I have been a part of um, Sydney for uh, three years now. I'm a board member. And we're an independent living center. And pretty much we provide services to people with disabilities. And, of course, we, you know, we serve all disabilities. We don't just service one. So any type of disability-related help that you're looking for, you know, we can definitely help you get that. I think that a lot of people are are frustrated with, you know, when this is a big system to overhaul and they, you know, wonder when it's going to get overhauled and talking about the money discussed. But I do think obviously that a big part of discussing the financial aspect is I don't think we, I think we're talking about money in the wrong way when it comes to fixing your subways and making them accessible for everybody. I don't think that that, I don't think financial aspects should be the focus. So to me, and it's not, not only that, so, yeah. not only that too, I want to also add, you're absolutely right about that issue, but one of the major reasons why you should want to, you know, have accessibility in your transportation system, it's a civil right. You know, exactly. we're not we're, we're not asking for something that is, you know, unorthodox. It's a civil right. And for people with disabilities and even a community to not have equal access to transportation, whether you know it or not, your civil rights is being, you know, violated. I hate podiums. Anyone who knows me knows I hate podiums, and so I'm being deliberate and very political and making a statement from a podium. So if you can't see me, welcome. I can't see you either. That was Rebecca Coakley speaking at the reintroduction of the Disability Integration Act this past January 15th. If you've ever had the luck that I have to have met Rebecca in person, you know she doesn't have time for bullshit, and she doesn't fuck around. She's busy, and she's got shit to do. Wait, why am I being bleeped out? Oh, my 10-year-old nephews listen to my podcast? Really? Okay, cool. So Rebecca is one of the leading disability rights activists in the United States. Rebecca is the Director for Disability Policy at the Center for American Progress Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. She previously served as the Executive Director of the National Council on Disability and served as an appointee in the Obama administration. Here is my conversation with Rebecca, where we speak about Carrie Ann Lucas, the history and future of the ADA, and what's next for disability rights. My name is Rebecca Coakley, and I, as my occupation is the director of the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress. What drew you to your occupation? I was drawn to my occupation when I was growing up and watching sort of the systematic discrimination that a lot of my friends faced in school and in society. And um, for myself, growing up as a little person with both of my parents as little people, I think there was some sort of, I think there's a, a privilege to that um, in that, you know, the way that I saw myself reflected in the world was through my parents who had the same struggles that I did. 
However, I had numerous other friends with disabilities um, that grew up as the only person like them in their families and um, saw them struggle a lot more. Actually, it was a a colleague uh, or a friend of mine who, when he was in uh, junior high school, was thrown in a dumpster and the lid was dropped on his head and he ended up not getting out of the dumpster. He was, he was too short to get the lid off the dumpster. And um, when his siblings came and found him late that night because they noticed that he hadn't come home from school and he had had Boy Scouts that afternoon. And so his mom hadn't been worried until pretty much until the sun went down and she sent her, her older children to go find him. And they found him in the dumpster. And the next day he went to school and had, he had been at a baseball game a few weeks earlier and gotten one of those like 18 inch tea bats that they give away as promos. And he had taken the bat with him to school to defend himself and he was expelled for harboring a weapon. And it was, um, just, a, a sort of knock upside the head for me that while I didn't have those issues growing up in a very supportive community, um, growing up with teachers that had high expectations and were all about being inclusive of students like me, that wasn't the case for a lot of kids with disabilities in the country and that I really wanted to be in a role as I got older where I could impact that. What were some early obstacles you had with your career? Well, originally, um, I would say probably one of the biggest obstacles was for the longest time I wanted to be a lawyer. And my dream was to go to law school. And upon um, graduating with my undergrad degree from the University of California, Santa Cruz, home of the fighting banana slugs, um, I repeatedly took prep tests and preparation classes and tutoring for the LSAT and never did well on them. And so early on, I remember really feeling a significant um, this level of disappointment because my dream was to go be a civil rights attorney. And my brain just could not wrap itself around the logic games piece of the LSAT. And so there was a period of time where I sort of felt stuck. Uh, and I, so I took two jobs, actually. I took an internship with my local congressman, Congressman Tom Lantos, um, who was the only member of the House of Representatives that was a Holocaust survivor. And then I took a job working for Victoria's Secret in San Francisco. Um, and I did both of those for a number of years uh, before actively deciding I wanted to move to D.C. to do policy work full time. But I think for a number of years, I felt like I was going to be stuck forever because I didn't have a Juris Doctorate. What's the number one misunderstanding people have about your job? I would say the largest misunderstanding that that people have about my job is that hmm, probably for people in the public, there's a large assumption that we do direct service. And so that um, we are actively here working with disabled folks on any number of issues that they're interested in where we are a policy think tank. And so we actively work with the disability community on pulling together policy priorities, thinking through recommendations, working on both offense and defense strategies um, as it relates to this current administration and, and this, current, this current class of Congress. Um, however, a lot of times we run into folks on the street and they ask what we do and they think that we're a locally based service provider. 
Do you consider yourself an advocate or an activist? And if so, in what way and how would that inform your work? I would say I consider myself an advocate, um, to use a, a term that one of my former bosses, Curtis Richards, used to use frequently. Um, having worked through the Obama administration and then also having worked on the outside, um, first at the Institute for Educational Leadership and now here at CAP, um, having an understanding of both sort of the inside game and the outside game, I think has been very critical uh, for my success and, and for the work that I'm trying to do. And so sort of having both sort of that, that bureaucracy knowledge as well as the advocacy uh, background makes me more effective. And what's one of the issues that's persistent in your field? The continued fight around preserving the health care of people with disabilities for the disability community, regardless of pretty much what type of disability that you have, having quality health insurance and quality care is a non-negotiable. It impacts where you live. It impacts what kind of job you have. It impacts whether or not you're able to get married. It can impact your ability to attend and complete school, your ability to work. And so over the last several years, actually, I don't, I can never remember a time where the disability community was not actively fighting for the preservation and the expansion of our healthcare services. So that will actually kick off the beginning of, of, of these questions. Um, Carrie and Lucas was a disability rights activist and attorney who fought for the rights of parents with disabilities. She founded uh, Disabled Parents' Rights, a nonprofit that's, quote, dedicated to combating discrimination that impacts parenting for di- parents with disabilities. Uh, Disability Parents' Rights provides direct representation, advocacy, and technical assistance to disabled parents as well as their advocates and attorneys, end quote. What did Carrie's work mean to you? Carrie and Lucas created a field of law where there wasn't one before. Um, I think as of three years ago, in 26 states, it still remained legal for, um, the child, for child protective services to remove a child from the home of a disabled parent solely on the basis of that parent's diagnosis of any type of disability. And when I served as the executive director of the National Council on Disability, we would get phone calls from parents with different types of disabilities from around the country who had lost their children. I remember a woman calling me who, had, who was dyslexic, and she had taken her iPhone into a pharmacy uh, to pick up a medication for her child. And she asked the pharmacist, would they read aloud the directions for the prescription into her phone so that she could record it and play it back for herself when she got home from work that day um, so she could make sure she gave the child the right dose of medication. And the pharmacist called Child Protective Services and the child was removed from their mother within 48 hours. And nobody ever thought about this as an issue. When, When the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, there was a thought that okay, now we've sort of solved rampant discrimination and abuse against people with disabilities. And I think it really, in the, in the case of the civil rights of parents with disabilities, it clearly demonstrates that the ADA was a floor and not a ceiling. Mm-hmm. And that Carrie Ann's work um, 
in addition to the work of, of notable other disabled attorneys that worked on this uh, that work on the civil rights of parents with disabilities, really reminds us that while the ADA got us to a certain point, the natural next step after disabled people should be able to have careers without facing discrimination, should be able to live in the community without discrimination, is that disabled people are going to want the same things as non-disabled people, which is they're going to want to get married and have a family and be a parent in a lot of cases. And that that was not something that was anticipated uh, back in the 80s when they were working on the ADA. And it's still a place where we largely need to go, both in terms of our advocacy and in terms of our policy. Carrie Ann Lucas passed away um, just this last week, um, late last month, after her insurance company, uh, United Healthcare, denied her cost of an antibiotic. Um, and I'm going to quote a statement from her family's um, on her Facebook page. Uh, Carrie Ann Lucas died after an arbitrary denial from an insurance company that caused a plethora of health problems, exacerbating her disabilities and eventually leading to her premature death. Insurance companies and government programs must not be allowed to deny people what they need. Just last month, she was having to ration her insulin for her type 1 diabetes because the same insurance company and how impossible it is to work between private insurance and Medicare and Medicaid. End quote. So this horrific ordeal is exactly what Carrie Ann was fighting against when she was arrested in 2017, when she was protesting the um, Medicaid budget cuts that Republican senators were proposing. What health care system um, do we need or t- to take steps towards that our representatives could put in place to make sure this t- these types of unnecessary and preventable tragedies don't happen again? Is it a Medicaid for all? Is it an expansion of ACA? What are some of the steps that we could take towards um, a system that couldn't deny um, this type of medication in service? I think the first step always has to be listening to the people that are directly impacted. And traditionally, when our those that consider themselves leaders in Congress started crafting healthcare legislation, the community of people with disabilities were not largely at the table. Um, And so I think first and foremost, being able to ensure that members of Congress are actively talking to folks that are directly impacted. And I think we're seeing that now in some major ways. I think both um, Representative DeLauro and Representative Schakowsky's legislation that they introduced uh, before the end of last year, as well as um, Representative Jayapal's legislation that was introduced this week, that both fall under the Medicare for All umbrella. Uh, um, both of those, all three of those offices, have been in active conversation with the disability community to find out what were the concerns, what do we need to be thinking about, and I think one big area that we've been very excited about in the work that we've been doing at the Center for American Progress. Um, because it was actually part of our Medicare for America proposal, is the expansion and coverage of long-term services and supports, which traditionally have been segregated in in the separate system called Medicaid. Um, But we all know that when you segregate out any community in terms of public policy, in terms of a physical location, in terms of access to materials, the community that's segregated Uh, gets handed lower quality services. They get less access. And so it's very exciting to me that as we're seeing a number of these proposals come out, that we're seeing a fully, the the proposal of a fully integrated system where disabled people are not just at the table, 
but are actively integrated into the policy that's being set up for everyone. For those listening who may not be familiar, what is the ADA? The ADA is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed into law in 1990 and is getting ready to celebrate its 29th birthday. So I'm waiting for it to have its midlife crisis. (laughs) You have mentioned in interviews that this is um, because of the population. This is the largest expansion of civil rights in America with this. Um, Why do people not associate it with civil rights. I mean, this is civil rights, but why do you think people don't, why do they see this as something separate? I think there's still significant and rampant ableism in this country. And um, when you look at sort of how we talk about disability, how we still have separate systems for many folks with disabilities, how we continue to um, segregate people with disabilities in different ways and subject people with disabilities to you know, lesser levels of access, lesser levels of treatment. Um, it, it doesn't make people necessarily think about it front of mind. You know, um, when we talk about ableism, you know, and I want to be clear, I, I, I tend to use an advocate named Talila Lewis's definition of the law or of, of the concept, which is a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on socially constructed notions of normalcy, intelligence, and excellence. Um, There isn't a structure that isn't impacted by uh, ableism. I was actually just talking to a colleague a few minutes ago about um, rampant discrimination in organ donation as it relates to people with disabilities. You know, we see a number of cases where a person, let's say a person that's autistic, needs a heart transplant. And they're denied by the corporations that manage the organ transplants because their quality of life is seen as lesser than because they're autistic, even though the heart has no impact on their autism, nor does their autism have any impact on their ability to deal with a heart transplant. All right. So we're in the middle of a um, another presidential election. I'm actually thankful for that, that we'll have a chance to do this over again. But to your knowledge, has any declared candidate hired a disability consultant or discussed, di- discussed disability rights or the expansion of the, um, the ADA? No. Uh, to date, I have yet to hear any candidate discuss bringing on a staff person with a disability. Um, I have heard no candidates discuss any specific policy priorities that impact the disability community. Um, And considering we represent one in four people in America and one in three families in this country live with a person with a disability, uh, it is far overdue at this point. I had this conversation with um, Dr. Ibram Kendi as well when he started the Anti-Racist Policy Institute at American University. He had been there for a little while, and I said to him, have, have you met with or been invited to meet with any congressional member? Um, and he said no. Is there a discon? Is it just unusual for politicians to reach out to think? I would feel that it would be a natural conversation between think tanks to say, this is something um, you are going to need the framework for this. Here I am to help you with that. Is there a reason why there's a disconnect? Why, why politicians wouldn't want to have this conversation to figure out how to staff out um, 
to staff out on these on these issues about talking about anti-racism, about talking about uh, disability rights. Where is the disconnect here? I, I think we're starting to see things somewhat change. I don't want to act like it's all sunshine and happiness and like those singing flowers from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say one of the unique things about our center being housed here at the Center for American Progress is that we are the first dis- national disability shop to be housed inside of any of the progressive think tanks um, here in Washington, D.C. And so we are at in much closer conversations with folks on the Hill on a daily basis than I think um, the disability community has been previously. I mean, we know if we're not at the table, we are in fact, and we've seen this numerous times, we are in fact on the menu. Um, and I've been excited over the last year since our, our center uh, launched last July 26th in commemoration of the 28th anniversary of the ADA. Um, just the, the number and the frequency of, of contacts that we've made with the Hill on, on both disability issues, but also issues like infrastructure, also issues like housing, also issues like women's health, where they're not specifically typically looked at as that's a disability issue, but they're understanding that because we're here at the Center for American Progress, we have the benefit of being able to work with an infrastructure team. We have the benefit of being able to work with a women's health team and really truly work to integrate the priorities of the disability community in the broader work here at CAP. You did mention a few Congress uh, congressional members before um, that you have worked with or you hear are working to... Um, who have been amiable to disability rights policy and the expansion of disability rights. Can you talk a little bit about a few of them um, who have been kind of championing this or who you've worked with that you've you've seen um, want to um, move this policy forward? You know, I think first and foremost, as, you know, as a woman with a, an apparent disability, I would be remiss if I didn't sh- shout out the amazing Senator Tammy Duckworth. Um, who is phenomenal. And I, you know, I always give her credit for doing the most blatantly disabled thing I've ever seen a member of Congress do back during the ADA, or sorry, during the ACA fights um, when she was still in the House before she came to the Senate. And she smuggled her iPhone inside her prosthetic leg to be able to go, um, uh, go Facebook Live from the floor of the House when the, um, when the Democrats were sitting in refusing to vote on repeal of key parts of the ACA. And for me as a disabled woman, I don't think I've ever been more proud of a politician in my entire life. Um, a, it was just such a blatantly disabled, cool thing to do. But B, the fact that she represents all of us in Congress has been, and now in the Senate, has been... Um, it's been a game changer for our community in a lot of ways. You know, also as a, a you know, the, the respect that she's also a working mom with a disability. Um, you know, going back to that conversation around Carrie Ann and Carrie Ann's work, the fact that for a lot of folks that the notion of disabled people being parents is still revolutionary or might still be taboo. But to have a seated senator who is an unapologetic badass and, um, and a mom, uh, working in the in the halls of the Senate is, is incredible. I think, um, you know, also Senator Casey from Pennsylvania has done phenomenal work. He's introduced legislation that would push to um, end uh, the loophole that enables providers to pay disabled workers less than minimum wage. Um, 
as well as um, Senator Murray's staff, who've been very committed to health issues and employment issues as well as it relates to the disability community. We have our champions, that's for sure. But I think that there's a definite opportunity, especially with this new Congress and, and how just dang exciting they are, mm-hmm. um, to engage with new members. I think traditionally the disability community has a long history of working with five or six key members at a given point in time. And my perspective, as is largely the perspective of this next generation of disability leaders, is that, you know, when you sort of like keep all your eggs in one basket, when those members leave or switch committees or, or pass away, um, then we are significantly impacted. We've seen some candidates, you know, for who are running for president now discuss universal child care or universal pre-K um, our country briefly had universal child care during World War II, and it almost passed in 1971 before Nixon vetoed it. Um, Marianne Wright Edelman made sure uh, this universal child care would be free for those in poverty and not just those accessible in the middle class. What is some of the language you'd like to see in universal child care to make sure that it equally benefits the disability community? I think making sure that... Um that there is mechanisms for providers to gain the knowledge that they need to have to work with um, both children with disabilities as well as parents with disabilities. I think um, ensuring that we know, for example, that women who are parents of children with disabilities are likely to take more time out of the workforce, um, largely in part because of the struggle of finding affordable and accessible childcare. And so there's both sort of a supply side and a demand side to this is, is how do we make it easier for childcare centers to be more inclusive and accessible of parents and children with disabilities? And at the same time, how do we also then help parents connect to those centers? Healthcare is obviously a big topic and we discussed a little bit before, um, but it always comes up during presidential years. And some candidates have discussed Medicaid for all. What would be the benefits and drawbacks for the uh, the disability community with a Medicaid for all system? And what are the current benefits and drawbacks, just a few of them, with ACA? You know, I think the ACA is easily the most important piece of or advancement in civil rights for people with disabilities since the Americans with Disabilities Act. The fact that it clearly laid out a prohibition against discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions was life-changing. I mean, I know people with disabilities who were never able to take a job that they wanted because they were afraid that they would lose their health insurance mm-hmm. or they wouldn't get covered in that new job. Uh, I know people that refute, that didn't move away for college for, for a similar reason. Um, even though they might have had tremendous financial and occupational incentives to do so. Um, and so, you know, I think the ACA was did go a really long way for people with disabilities and, and is extremely important. I think as we continue to see these proposals, um, these Medicare for All proposals that integrate things like long-term supports and services for people with disabilities, there is a huge opportunity. You know, I was also really excited to see things like hearing aids included in the essential health benefits piece. Um, Most people don't realize that a hearing aid can cost as little as $50 or as much as eight to $10,000. 
and what that means for folks. You know, I think there's still a, a huge opportunity in a lot of these uh, pieces of legislation to look at um, various types of medical equipment for people with disabilities. I think one of the things that we've traditionally seen in Medicare is, you know, Medicare typically does not cover anything that you need outside of your home. So if you have a child who needs speech therapy, that's in their Medicaid. If you're a person that needs paratransit to take you to and from school or to and from work, that's from Medicaid, not Medicare. And so it really does highlight for me why integrating these systems is really critical um, as we move forward with these various uh, Medicare for all proposals. So does it just not benefit... um... It does. It does not benefit, I guess, pharmaceutical companies or private. Tr- I mean, there seems to be a massive resistance, and it usually always has to do with money. Um, is that one of the biggest obstacles that we're having? Is that um, the people that are trying to prevent something from this happening? Is what is the? What do you think the biggest obstacle is? Is it the public not understanding how some of these systems works, and so they can't advocate on beca- behalf? Uh, of themselves and others, or is it, um, is it, I don't know if they will say big pharma fighting some of these things. I think it's a combination of both. I mean, these systems are notoriously complicated. Um, there's not a day that goes by that I'll go down the hall to our health team and ask, uh, Topher Spiro, a technical question tied to, um, uh, tied to Medicare for America, um, which is CAP's proposal, that I don't know the answer to, or I don't know how to explain it in such a way that that will make sense to the folks that I'm working with, or I won't know the technical aspects of it. It is really complicated. And I think even in talking to legislators, it's easy for them to get confused about what's in what proposal and what are the, what are the mechanisms that need to be put in place? What does the infrastructure actually look like? Which is honestly why I think it's so important that these legislators are talking to the people that are being directly impacted by these policies um, as they're crafting this legislation versus uh, I think one of the things that is sort of notoriously problematic for the disability community is we're brought in after a law is just about, or we're brought in in the final five minutes before the ink dries when Mm -hmm. somebody realizes, Oh heck, we didn't talk to the disability community and this is going to have a huge impact on their lives. Um, and so I think that's why this is really important and why it's really important for legislators to hear from directly from advocates and their families um, about why this matters and what what proposed changes need to really look like. In earlier podcast, I discussed the pervasive issue of not believing black women in mm-hmm. their health issues before and during childbirth. Mm -hmm. During the Women with Women conference, you discussed a disturbing issue you dealt with when a doctor recommended getting your tubes tied. You assumed a woman with dwarfism wouldn't want any more children. Are there policies and policy makers, are there policies that could hold medical professions accountable for this type of bigotry discrimination? Wouldn't that fall under the ADA or does, does it not work like that? Ideally, it would, but I think there really is a fundamental, I think we, across communities, I think we need to have a frank conversation around the knowledge, skills, and abilities for our medical providers. And I think it's true for Black women. I think it's true for the trans community. I think it's true for people with all different types of disabilities. Um, 
because the way that medical professionals are trained are on largely, you know, white, middle class, able-bodied, normative people. And that doesn't work for us. Our needs are different. And so we need medical professionals with that additional acuity, with that, with that you know, cultural competence, um, you know, to be able to meet the needs of our communities and ensure that, you know, if there are red flags for us, that we're being informed, that we're in the driving seat of our health care, as opposed to being treated like we're either A, a passenger, or B, an experiment slash freak show slash outlier of some kind, which I know folks from all various communities, uh, all marginalized communities have felt like um, in engaging with the medical industrial complex. How can we discuss accessibility so that we understand, the public understand that it benefits everyone? For example, people in New York discuss how installing an elevator at each stop would be expensive, but it would also benefit seniors and families with strollers. Um, a woman died, a, a mother died carrying her child in a stroller down the stairs mm-hmm. of a subway uh, system in New York City. Um, why do our policymakers have a hard time discussing discrimination and the benefits in an intersectional way? I think it's because they haven't experienced it firsthand, largely. I think it's because the privilege with which they come to their work. Um, you know, I uh, there had been a march um, at the Netroots Nation conference about two years ago, right when there was the uprising in Charlottesville, there was a response march in um, Atlanta during the Netroots Nation conference. And uh, we were down there. I had actually just left, but my team was down there um, having presented about how the disability community can save the progressive movement. Um, and uh, my colleagues ended up leading the march. And um, Two of my colleagues uh, were wheelchair users, um, and another one um, was ambulatory. And so they led; they were in the front of the march. And um, the coordinators of the march, when they got to a place where there were stairs, the coordinators of the march wanted to go up the stairs. And a number of the activists, including my colleagues, were like, "No, we're not going up the stairs because then you're going to make us have to go around. You're separating this this thing that's supposed to be unifying, mm. and that's not how this works." And so the disabled advocates actually led the entire rest of the folks marching, like out of the way, up the back, like in this total, you know, um, uh, took them the long route, which is often what disabled people have to deal with. And it was transformative for people that, that participated in that march because they had never, A, been in a position where they were subjugated to trusting a disabled person. And in this case, um, three disabled women of color. Um, and B, they had never been told that they couldn't go the easy route, mm. that they had to go the way that the disability community had to go. Um, and so it really was a privilege check for them. And so I think that's a really big thing. I think also there's a real sense in this country that when people exercise their civil rights that they're asking for extra, not that they're asking for a basic level of equity, um, whether it be, um, you know, people who can't stand in line for a long time at Disneyland, mm. you know, and we saw people get, we saw normies um, get really upset about that and be like, well, why do those people get to go ahead in the line? It's like, well, that person can't stand for a long time. 
Um, you know, or you see people pre-boarding on a plane, um, get side eye and, and grief from other passengers or, you know, people getting more time on a test because they need someone to read it aloud to them. Um, whatever it is, this, the, the ableist narrative in our society gives the impression that people with disabilities are getting something extra versus getting the same, getting a level of access, access that they need in order to be equally successful as non-disabled people. Well, one thing, and all these are the last two um, things, I guess, that could change this is representation and voting. And currently, there are over 35 million voters, registered voters, with disabilities. And a third of them, or maybe even more, the third that was reported, issues with voting uh, due to accessibility, lack of accessibility issues at polling stations, being able to see the ballot, having an issue with the machine. How is this not a clear violation of the ADA? Oh, it is a huge issue, and it's actually an issue that we need to talk about going further, especially as we're seeing some um, legislation things like HR1 that really focus on the expansion of democracy and thinking through how we know that people with disabilities will vote more regularly if there is early voting in place, which I think is a key recommendation that we see in that legislation, as well as coming out of a number of different um, uh, think tanks and and congressional offices. You know, we know that uh, early, you know early voting has a huge impact on people with disabilities. I think also having the understanding that um, ex, you know being able to access a, a fair and private vote is essential for all citizens. And so, while sometimes the machine might work for someone with one type of disability, you know somebody else um, may need to use a hard paper ballot. And that's okay. I mean, the key should be about how do we ensure that the most people that are, that are able to vote can vote. Um, and, and it's going to be, it's going to continue to be a, a significant issue going forward also because frankly, and I hate using this rhetoric, but it is true. You know, eventually all of you are going to become disabled if you keep aging. Mm. Um, and so you can either vote for this now or you can grouse and complain about it when you get older and you start finding your rights treated the same way our rights are. Do you believe, you mentioned Tammy Duckworth earlier, do you believe more people with disabilities will be inspired to run for office now that we've seen how powerful representation can be? Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, I was thrilled to see Billy Sutton ran for governor in South Dakota. Um, and Billy is a uh, uh, former rodeo writer who was paralyzed and was a Senate minority leader in the state. We were really excited, even though he didn't win, just to see him out there um, talking about the issues impacting South Dakotans with disabilities. Um, we also saw Raymond McCoy McDeed in Iowa running for state representative, who is a brilliant black autistic woman. Um, and one of the things that she was specifically fighting for was the right, for candidate, the right of candidates to be able to use campaign dollars to pay for child care while on the campaign. And though she didn't win her race, that issue is being taken up um, by the Iowa State House right now, which I think is an important win in and of itself. Uh, you know, I think we will continue to see more people with disabilities run also because we forget that disability is also, um, disability also has greater representation in communities of color. And so I would be willing to bet, and I know that, you know, we already have a couple of the new members of Congress that um, are out as people with health conditions, but don't necessarily identify as people with disabilities. 
um, which is a, a natural thing in our community. People take, um, people take the necessary time they need to get to where they want to be in terms of identity development. We know that. But I wouldn't be surprised to see a number of those individuals start to come out as people with disabilities. I would love to see the Bipartisan Disability Caucus, um, which is currently chaired by Representative Langevin, um, become much more representative of the communities represented um, and the new members of Congress that, that are definitely pushing a more inclusive, broader agenda than we've seen in quite a long time. So I'll actually finish up with this. Um, at the conference, you said two things that really stayed with me. Um, one of them was that with with language, I think people dance around the word disability. <laughs> and, you know, for a couple of years, I, I remember everybody was using different different things, differently abled. Oh, this gosh, is, yes. Right. <laughs> and you said, hey, we use disabled because it's protected by the law, okay? And so I liked how... Um, firm you were about that. And also, and I would love for you to discuss that a little bit more. And also you talked about um, how inclusive disability is. You said, you know, you just touched on it a little bit, but my best friend has Crohn's and she talked, and she was sitting next to me, Tanya Abernathy, who loves you, worships you. Um, <laughs> she said, um, she has Crohn's and she said, I never thought of myself as disabled, even though it was preventing me, um, from my job, getting to my job. Sometimes I was getting discriminated against because my employer was worried about, um, me having a flare up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she felt, um, welcomed yeah. uh, when you said that. So could you touch upon those those two things the language and 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 what it, how disability is is much broader than people tend to think about it right now. So we use you know I'm part of a, a large portion of the disability community that use the word disability. We don't like euphemisms. We don't like special needs, differently able, handicapped, you know any sort of challenge language. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for it. One is it's a word that we chose. All of those euphemisms largely come from either the service provider world or from parents of people with disabilities who found the word disability uncomfortable. Look, I don't care if it makes you uncomfortable. Um, why should the rest of society have to conform what people who are not us use to describe us versus how we want to be described? And I think that's really, I think every community has the right to self-identification. And for this generation of disabled leaders, um, you know, for us, it's about being proud of your identity as a person with a disability. We're 20 to 25 percent of the United States population. Um, We are everywhere. You do have to deal with this. You're dealing with us whether or not you realize you are. And there's power in that. And there's also real power. And I think, you know, the fact that the word disability is used in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which gives us our rights to access a free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. It, it's Disability is spelled out in Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, um, which gives us our right to access any federal structure, any structure that receives federal dollars. Um, also gives us our right to post-secondary education. You know, the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's not the Americans with Special Needs Act. I'm sorry to po- folks. I think it should be that, but it's not. Deal with it. Um, and it. And so it ties it to a statute so that when you're being discriminated against, I think there's real power in saying, no, I'm a person with a disability and these are the rights that I have under the ADA. Um, because none of those euphemisms are in those pieces of legislation. 
you know, and when we talk about the community, I think for so long, people have traditionally thought about disability, just like they think about what the disability parking sticker looks like, how it's just like white dude wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And that's not who our community is. That's in fact, such a small population um, within our community. And the ADA was very deliberate in using an extremely broad definition of disability. And so what I've really found important in the work that we do is actually like fleshing out what that definition looks like and really grounding it in things like the activities of daily living, like your friend having the struggles getting up to go to work in the morning. Um, I was sitting with a colleague recently um, who's a um, an activist in um, a bunch of different progressive circles who was telling me about living her life with depression. And she was like, yeah, but I've never considered it a disability. And I said to her, does it affect what you eat, when you eat, and how you eat? And she looked at me and she said, well, yeah, of course it does. She's like, I've been snacking on a two-pound bag of gummy bears for a few weeks now. Um, And I paused and I said, okay, does it affect what you wear? And she's like, yeah, I haven't left the house all weekend and I'm wearing the same pair of sweats. And I was like, all right, does it affect how you engage with your loved one? And she goes, of of course it does. And I said, well, welcome to the disability community. Those are activities of daily life. Um, You know, we know it's true. Actually, my colleague, Matt Cortland, um, shout out to Medicaid Matt, who is easily one of my favorite people on the face of the planet. And it's someone that if you don't follow on Twitter, you should. Um, Matt posted something the other night talking about migraines. And we know that over 30 million Americans experience migraines. You know, people will look at me and judge just because I'm a little person that my dwarfism is the most significant health issue that I have. My dwarfism doesn't make me stay home from work. Um, My dwarfism doesn't make me retch into a toilet bowl um, out of nausea um, at a conference, but migraines do. And so we often don't talk about you know, the, the additional categories that are included under the ADA, whether it be migraines, whether it be chronic illnesses like lupus, Crohn's, or fibromyalgia, you know, whether it be eating disorders, which is a huge community that we don't talk about in the disability space. Um, you know, we continue to struggle talking about the AIDS and HIV community um, because of long-seated um, tensions between our communities going back to when the ADA was initially written and folks desire to keep the uh, AIDS and HIV community outside of the law's protections, you know? And so we are a huge community. And to me, it's just so symptomatic of America that we put policies and funding and structures in place to keep 57 plus million people in this country divided Versus if we united them, just think about how powerful of a community we would have. Thank you for listening. I'm Maya Contreras, and this is Obscene. Obscene.